Hello and welcome! You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. In this episode, we have a very special guest on the show, Professor Elizabeth Tasker from the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. Elizabeth is also an excellent science communicator and author of The Planet Factory, a book about what we know and what we don't know about the formation of exoplanets. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Yeah, so um, Elizabeth, it seems like you had a very similar early career path to the three of us in that you started in the UK with an undergraduate and PhD at Oxford and Durham, and then crossing the ocean to uh, to find a postdoc effectively in Columbia at New York and, and Florida, and then McMaster in Canada, right? But it seems like you started off somewhere far from exoplanets in computational astrophysics doing uh, numerical simulations of galaxies. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about how your journey through science brought you to exoplanets? Absolutely. So when I started my PhD, and this is going to age me, um, I was I graduated in 2002. And at the time, there actually wasn't a huge amount of exoplanet research being done in the UK. There was some, uh, but I was also really interested in computational modelling and basically building universes inside my computer. And the best work in the UK at that time being done in that area was on galaxy simulations and cosmology. The UK had you know, really good reputation in that area. So when I looked for PhD places, um, that area was, you know, that there were places available and they looked really exciting. So although I was interested in planets and I did apply for at least one planet PhD, I decided in the end, no, um, I'm really excited by computing. I'm going to go in that direction. And so um, I went from Durham to Oxford and did my PhD with uh, Greg Bryan on cosmological and galaxy scale simulations. And then, of course, as any, any academic will know, you get a bit stuck in the publication rat race. So once you're in an area, it's actually very hard to change because you need to keep those publications coming. Now, this makes it sound like I was trapped in some terrible cave that I couldn't escape from. And that's not true. <laughs> I really enjoyed my early work. Uh, the We were sort of at the brink of being able to do some really exciting things where you could model an entire galaxy disk, but push down, not quite to star formation itself, but certainly to the properties of the star forming clouds. So this was a, a new area that we were all getting into. And um, I did my postdoctoral work, uh, started off at Columbia. Actually, Greg moved to Columbia from Oxford. So I followed him and did the last year of my PhD there. And then because the British PhD is only three years, <laughs> I did an extra year at Columbia where I basically published my thesis. And I was really lucky to have that opportunity. And then from there, I went down to the University of Florida and I did, I became a fellow, they had like a named fellowship in theoretical astrophysics. And of course, you know, I was still in the same area so I could keep publishing. And then I went up to um, McMaster University in Canada where they have actually an amazing computational group. I really enjoyed my years there. So it wasn't until I moved to Japan and I got a faculty position that I started to feel I had the security needed to possibly move fields but it still was quite a large undertaking because, you know, I had students that they couldn't, I couldn't risk a project I didn't fully understand on a student because that would be their, their career down there would be awful. Um, so I still stuck very much to what I knew. But then quite unexpectedly, I got an email from Bloomsbury Publishing House and they're a very big publishing house. They publish the Harry Potter books and they amusingly replied to a contact form I had on my website where I had jokingly very tongue in cheek said, oh, you know, hey, uh, offers to make me the next woman on the Forbes billionaire list just, just right here. And of course, the first woman on the Forbes billionaire list, I believe, is J.K. Rowling. So uh, getting an email from Bloomsbury was, was actually hilarious. Um, and they actually entitled it, offered to make you the second woman on the Forbes billionaire list. Um, I have to say How that... How could you refuse? <laughs> I, well, I, I didn't. I mean, that was the answer. <laughs> um, I have to admit that it turns out that writing about science as opposed to boy wizards doesn't quite get you to, to the Forbes billionaire list. But nevertheless, they emailed me. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. Um, 
they emailed me to say they're starting a new imprint for science books and they were actually looking for new authors and they'd seen I had a blog that I'd been keeping for 10 years and I was writing occasionally for the media and they found me through this and said would you be interested in writing a book do you want to write about galaxies and I said no <laughs> I don't want to write about galaxies or stars I really 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 want to write about planets and they said knock yourself out um, so I did that and then uh, the book was published uh, just over two years later uh, in September 2017. That is an absolutely amazing way of getting into being able to publish and also do what you wanted to do for so long, change fields. Um, and, you know, since then you've you moved from, from Hokkaido down to JAXA in Tokyo now, I believe. And how has that kind of helped you move in the science work you're doing as well? So um, when I was at Hokkaido, as you said, I, I was now writing this book and it was a great excuse because I now had excuse to reserve the time needed to start catching up on the literature. Because obviously there's, there's, <laughs> there's an insane amount. And yes, you can always pretend you're going to read three papers every morning, but um, <laughs> I'm not the greatest at sticking to that. Uh, so there I was with a book with a deadline. And suddenly, you know, I read very widely straight across the planet formation field. It's impossible to read all the papers, but I really gave that a solid try. You know, I, I gave it my best shot at trying to read basically everything out there so I could write a volume that wasn't necessarily comprehensive, but at least hit all the main areas at the time. Um, so once I'd done that, you know, there was, obviously I felt actually more up to date on planets than I did on stars. <laughs> so I was looking to to move my, um, my actual research across and sort of in parallel to that, I was starting to wonder about a new position. I was actually very happy at Hokkaido. They were a very nice university. I had a good position there. But as I wrote more and more, I realized how important science communication was to me. Now, Hokkaido gave me opportunities to do science communication and they had no problem at all with me spending some time on that, but the time was not reserved in my job. So it was like, if you have time, sure. But if you don't have time, and sometimes we might make it so you do not have time, then everything else takes priority. And I especially saw a sort of danger beacon on the horizon as they were introducing more uh, courses taught in English. And I was the only native speaker in the department. So I started to feel there was a dangerous horizon heading my way <laughs> where I thought my time would just be taken away and I wouldn't be able to do any science communication. So I started looking for a possible job where this could be combined officially and my time would be protected for both research and SciComm. And JAXA did not advertise this position at all. <laughs> they advertised a regular associate professor position. At this time, I was heading for tenure, so I was only a few months away from my tenure assessment. And they advertised associate professor position, and it was sort of an open call. They sort of said all departments, you know, we would consider an application. So I actually wrote to the contact person and I said, look, my research isn't directly connected with JAXA. I felt that most people they would hire would be able to directly use the data from the missions. But I'm a theorist. I do hydrodynamical simulations and machine learning. It's not a direct, you know, from your mission to my computer. So I didn't know whether they would go for it, but I said, I do do a lot of science communication. I've been starting to cover the Hayabusa 2 mission. We had people from the team actually at Kaido. So I started to write about the mission for the media. And I said, would you be interested in me doing that officially for you, as opposed to someone on the side? And they said, yes, we're interested, apply. And so I, I wrote the application of my lifetime <laughs> and I sold them the idea that what they thought they were looking for was a scientist and an observer, but actually what they secretly wanted was a theorist who could do science communication. And strangely enough, they bought it, <laughs> which surprised me greatly. <laughs> um, and it was amazing. I think there's a huge lesson to be learned there that says, if you want to do a job and you see a niche, you know, tell people they might not be seeing it but they might just not realize that such an opportunity is out there either. So I, I went down for my interview and then um, I went back a few months later and met with the then director general. Uh, and he said to me, we're going to try and make two hires. We're going to try and hire the person who they actually wanted. who <laughs> 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 was actually, you know, very strongly connected with one of their missions and actively using the data. But they said, you know, we agree that um, English outreach at JAXA needs a lot of work. Uh, it's not at the level we would like it to be. Our domestic outreach is lopsided, it's very good. And then we've sort of got a little bit of English training along behind. 
and we like what you've done with Hayabusa 2 so far, so we're going to try and make that jewel higher. And so they did, they found a second position and uh, they offered me the position and I started in October 2016. And that had several effects on my career. For a start, I do now a lot of science communication. Um, I did shrink my research programme in order to do that, but I'm very happy with the balance. I also um, became good buddies with the Earth Life Sciences Institute, ELSI, that's also in Tokyo. And they are an interdisciplinary institute um, focused on the origins of life. So anything connected with the origins of life is ELSI's jurisdiction. So obviously that includes planet formation. It also includes, um, you know, things in test tubes, like real start of life stuff, and also artificial life um, and, and intelligence. And there I met um, other researchers and together we, we developed this project for machine learning to try and impute planet properties that in the archive. So as people are aware, we have this archive of thousands and thousands of planets, but each individual entry is quite sparse. And sometimes that just can't be fixed with more observations. If the planet doesn't transit, you're not getting the radius, end of story. Um, and sometimes you know, the star might be too noisy to ever get a radial velocity measurement. So we looked at ways in which you could basically do a multi-dimensional guess. So the advantage of machine learning is that you don't need to plot it on a 2D graph. It doesn't really care how many parameters you have. If you have patterns, it will find it. So we were experimenting with that technique and that was my, I think my first planetary paper. Um, I think, at least it was certainly the first one I started working on. It may not be the first one I actually published, <laughs> but it was the first, first official project where I, I officially switched from star formation. And also with that team, I did um, I did another one uh, for a, a little web-based uh, program called Earth-like, which allows people to adjust very small parameters related to the Earth and see how much our global temperature change varies just based on a very simple box model. And the idea is that you can see that, you know, you could be really, really, really Earth-like and still have a very different planet was kind of the message I was trying to get across with that. Sure. I, I guess these are both kind of computational projects. So it sounds like there were things you were able to translate from your PhD into exoplanets in some sense. Yes, absolutely. And I, I do do some hydrodynamical modelling as well. I was um, modelling protoplanetary disks with my graduate student and uh, she then went to get a postdoc, which was good, but a bit sad in some ways, <laughs> because now I have to finish this paper. And I was hoping to do this last year, but, you know, 2020 happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> so didn't, didn't and didn't happen and didn't, all at the same happen. time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so obviously we've been stuck at home and Tokyo has entered its fourth state of emergency. And to be fair, there, as a computational physicist, there's nothing really to stop me working as normal from home. But I have to tunnel through the Jackson VPN, <laughs> which is not a, a small task. So it's been much easier to focus on the outreach side of my job than and sometimes the machine learning more than the hydrodynamical modeling where I have to hack into the, the supercomputer from home. But I, I do need to pick that up and, and finish it. And that would be a very close match actually to my PhD. We've just gone from galaxy disk to planet disks. But, you know, you just change the scale bar and it's, it's all good. <laughs> I mean, the physics is the same, right? And we're looking at the same kinds of equations that we're putting together to try and try and form things from our galaxy structure down to our disk structures. So it's uh, really nice to see that we can move that, make that transition. And perhaps some, there's some people that want to go in the other direction in the exoplanet field, who knows? I don't know why they'd want to do that. <laughs> there's but so many transferable skills. There's definitely a lot of links in my galaxy work. I was looking at sort of structures forming in the disk. And in this project I was doing with my student, Yun, we were looking at how structures in the disk can impede migration. So it's it's the same formation with self-gravity to form these sort of spirals and rings. Um, but just asking instead of are, are they forming stars, you're asking, you know, how can they trap potentially or speed up planet migration? Well, one of the di biggest differences there, I'm guessing, is that when we're talking about galaxies and star formation, we're really talking about the gas. But in disks, we need we need to add in those rocks, that dust in there as well. How how does combining that make it more complicated for us to understand planet formation? So I just decided that was too complicated and I stuck purely to a Fair pure enough. gas disk. Um, whether that was the right decision, I would say was an open question. Uh, Modelling dust is tricky. Uh, there definitely are people who are doing it. Um, but like you say, it's... Uh, it's not exactly clear how to do it. There's different methods for tackling that problem. 
it's it's complicated. So one thing I wanted to know is, is when you started out in the UK doing a PhD, did you realize science would take you across the world, you know, first to North America and then to Japan? Was was that was did you always think that that was where you would end up? Or? In all honesty, yes, it was part of the master plan. <laughs> so <laughs> I know travel can be very difficult for some people. And especially if you end up with, you know, what we tend to call the two body problem or heaven forbid the family. Um, but for me, uh, travel was a really big bonus of the job. I was really excited to move abroad and um, I sort of left as soon as I could, which was not a reflection on the UK because at the time we, we hadn't done Brexit. Um, now it might be more of a reflection on the UK. But at the time, you know, I, I was very happy in the UK. There was nothing scientifically that meant I had to move, but there was this opportunity to go to North America and I really wanted to see the States. And then I had this idea I'd be, I'd be gone for five years and that was... Um, uh, maybe maybe 15, 15 years ago now, up, up, almost 20, uh, because I, I was just never done. I just keep wa- kept wanting to travel. Um, so I went to Japan originally in between my postdocs in the States and Canada for a four-month JSPS fellowship. Um, they have the Japan Society for Promotion of Science has fellowships for people to come across for short or long periods. So it's a really good way to try, uh, you know, a really different country because I really enjoyed the States and Canada, but we are historically cut from the same cloth. So obviously everyone still speaks English, um, well, most parts of Canada do. And it, it's, um, you know, it is a very similar country. So the differences are fun to discuss, but there's still a base underneath there that we're all sharing. And you move to Japan and the history is really different. And I found that really exciting. So I was very excited to go back when the opportunity for a faculty position there came up. Well, I was just going to I was going to build on um, something you said a little bit earlier about teaching um, in English uh, and to speak and to be teaching undergraduate physics to non-native speakers at that kind of complex level. Did you have to kind of adapt your lecturing presentation style to get across those more complex concepts to people who don't have English as their first language? And what was kind of the reasoning behind having English language uh, kind of instruction in Japan in the first place? So the reasoning behind it was largely international students, I believe. Um, so if you have an international student, you know, to get them up to the level of Japanese is for undergraduate education is a tough call. So you, you would inevitably take on a lot less students. Um, and also it, it hugely benefits Japanese students if they want to take the course. Uh, my first year, I actually had quite a lot of Japanese students and then they sort of changed the way the courses were allocated for credits. I think it might not be possible to do both the Japanese and English equivalent at the same time. So in the first year, they allowed you to do both. So you could take the English one feeling confident that you had the Japanese one backing you up anyway. But in the second year, they sort of made it a full credit course. And then as a result, you had to pick and that understandably dropped the number of Japanese students in my class. Uh, but it is the ones that took it, I think, really did benefit because at the end of the day, if you want to be a professional scientist, you have to publish in English. So the more exposure you have, the better it is. And I absolutely did, I would say, change my lecturing technique. It was the first time I'd lectured, so I I guess I didn't really change it per se, but certainly from how I thought I would lecture, because when I was a student, I hated lecturers who did PowerPoint presentations. They could pack too much in and you just didn't have time to absorb it. I preferred it if they wrote on the board because it gave me time to write and think about it as well. But I tried various, my, my poor first class, they were guinea pigs. I tried various different techniques with them and I asked them about it afterwards. And they said to me, look, they said, we cannot write and listen. It's just too difficult for us in English. So I reverted to the style of lecturing that I hated um, but for this very specific reason. And I did PowerPoint presentations for every single lecture. And I found that I had several advantages. Firstly, generally speaking, people's written English was better than their spoken English. So having the key points clearly on a slide made a huge difference to people's understanding. Secondly, where I could, I skipped words altogether and I used pictures because everyone can understand a picture. So I used a lot of diagrams. I used a lot of movies. Um, I raided the web for physics demonstration videos because I felt as long as if you set the scene, so everyone knows what you're talking about. Are you talking about, you know, electromagnetism? Are you talking about projectiles? Are you talking about thermal dynamics? If you set the overall topic for the conversation, it's much easier to follow. And I, I find that, I mean, my Japanese is still really embarrassingly bad but I can muddle through a conversation if I know roughly what that conversation is on, because I have a script sort of in my head. 
So, you know, as long as when I go to a store to pay my gas bill, we don't suddenly start asking me about my taste in, I don't know, strawberry milkshakes. We're all good. Uh, if we go off topic, we've got a real problem. <laughs> so so I, I applied the same logic to um, to my lectures and um, I tried to set the scene really with no words whatsoever. And then I put the keywords in um, written down. And then I did a lot of mathematical examples. So actually around that time, um, there were a number of textbooks I looked at and one that was very highly recommended um, was uh, one which had very few equations in. And I could totally understand if you were a native English speaker, this would be fabulous because it explains it all really clearly. But actually it was the worst possible text for my poor students because the equations are actually easier to understand than a large block of English text. So I did a lot of adaptions like that um, and it made the first year I think everyone's first year teaching is immensely hard, uh, but the PowerPoint presentations, they were huge things I put together. And I was so tired near the end of my first year that I put cat biscuits in my rice cooker one night. Oh, no. <laughs> it was Friday night and I was thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to have the evening off. It's going to be fabulous. And I, I put what I thought was rice and I went to the oh, convenience no. store to pick up some juice and I came back and there was this terrible smell. And I thought, what are my neighbors cooking? This is just truly awful. <laughs> and uh, uh, it wasn't my neighbors people, it, it was me. <laughs> oh, that's, that's an absolutely brilliant story. I, it's, you know, the way in which you just described teaching, absolutely brilliant. Thank you for sharing such detail on that because it's about using that storytelling that you've got. So do you feel like the science communication and all of the things that you've been building up to has very much helped with that that aspect of the job that you've got. Yes, absolutely. It's um, <laughs> it's uh, I was teaching a science communication. It's, it's the same thing, really. Hello, pussycat. Sorry, I can see the video. <laughs> yeah. um, I said we were talking about a cat little, little screamer. I'm trying to somehow <laughs> get her to sit down. You keep going. I'm yeah. going to talk for a bit. <laughs> But yeah, I, it, it is the same skill set. I mean, it's a different medium because um, obviously as a lecturer, even my public talks are quite different. Um, when I give a, a lecture, I obviously all have the key points on the slides and we have we have moments where we stop and I use the clickers, you know, to do uh, sort of spot quizzes, which I found give people a break as well. And I, I tend not to do that so much in my public talks. I don't tend to stop and say, right, people, I want you to calculate exactly what the moment of inertia is of this particular system. Um, <laughs> we tend to just keep rolling with the public talks. But I think, you know, explaining things and learning to speak a little more slowly and clearly and also trying to read your audience. I have to say Japanese students have amazing poker faces, but um, <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> trying to gauge whether, whether you know, you've, you've got people nodding along with you or not. And if not, you know, rewinding a bit and clarifying, I think definitely helped my all my presentations. And also understanding where people get stuck. I mean, you by the time you're lecturing, you've been doing physics for an awfully long time and you forget when you learned things. I think that's a really big risk. So it helps to have a reminder of, oh, you know, actually people haven't been doing calculus all that long. <laughs> Maybe we should have a quick recap uh, and, and things like that. And that's, that's really helpful even on any level of science communication. Yes, teaching virtually this year has been very interesting without the kind of feedback, you know, that that audience reaction and knowing, okay, are you getting this? It's, a, it's an important thing, but you've kind of transitioned now from teaching. You're, you're now putting out some videos and stuff of the, the subjects and the work that you're doing. How is that different um, from that kind of aspect? So I was inspired by other videos and there's, uh, have you seen uh, Minute Physics where they do these blackboard videos? I love those. I think they're fantastic. And I have to admit, I was caught up with a Facebook ad, <laughs> which I'm not sure whether that's great or just deeply worrying that they hit my interest quite so accurately. But they had, the uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's good. It also inspired me in my machine learning. Um, <laughs> so they... Uh, one of the ads that popped up was for a software package called Doodly and they had a lifetime license for I think 65 US dollars and I thought well for that kind of price even if I didn't really like it I would it wouldn't be too bad to try out and it's you know one-off price so I bought it and it was immensely easy to use Doodly is um, a revealer program so you draw the images separately and then you import them to Doodly and you show Doodly how you want it to reveal them so you basically do the brush strokes for it and then it just does it. It's, 
it's an incredibly simple piece of software. And that sort of started my videos because I didn't really want to do a kind of talking at the camera. Um, I'm too used to slides. I like my backup. Uh, but I did love these minute physics videos. So with Doodly, I started to do a whole series, well, not a whole series, but several um, blackboard and whiteboard videos. I did some for my research. So I did the, the one I mentioned with the machine learning uh, imputing planet properties has a little Doodly video. And I did one for concepts that I felt were commonly misunderstood, like the habitable zone. Um, and uh, I think I've got a few others on, on slightly different topics too. And I really like that style to watch. And therefore I felt that, you know, it would be fun to do that as well. Generally speaking, both in my writing and with my videos, I try to emulate a style I enjoy. So if I feel I would enjoy reading it, then that, that's what I'm aiming for. And I just have to hope that people have similar tastes to me. <laughs> so talking about the Habitable Zone there, um, we always discuss and argue about the Habitable Zone on Exocast and how science communication of habitability in general has problems. And you actually wrote a, a great article about that very subject, or specifically about the exoplanet ranking metrics, which is something that's often used within the realm of habitability. So um, so, so what, what do you think needs to change in terms of science communication and publications around kind of habitability? So I think that really we need to spend some time explaining the process. I mean, it, when you're talking to non-scientists, you're not talking to people with a lower IQ than you. It's just they've made substantially better life choices about their career than the rest of us. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you don't have to dub anything down. Painfully accurate. <laughs> you, there's no need to, to dub it down or pretend we found something we haven't. And it, it seems to me that at the moment for exoplanets, this is the journey of our generation. I feel really passionately about that. I mean, I, of course, I've heard there are other areas of science and maybe they're doing good stuff, but <coughs> you know, we've gone within 30 years from not knowing any planets outside the solar system to knowing over 4,000. And now our next generation of telescopes is gonna talk about characterization, actually knowing you know, the composition of these planets to give us our first clues to what that's like on the surface. And maybe, maybe, even to spot signs of life on different planets. And I don't know why you would ever want to shortcut that journey. Like there's no need to pretend you found an Earth-like planet because the radius happens to be within a factor of two of the Earth. I mean, it's, it's so obviously garbage when we've got Venus sitting right there that I find it just insulting to everyone. It's insulting to scientists who are developing these new instruments and tools to you know, do incredibly complicated observations that will characterize these planets. And it's insulting to your audience to think that they will just say, oh, radius is the same, the planet must be the same too. Um, but I find that, you know, many media headlines will try and take the easy answer. And maybe this is also something we've even seen in 2020 with the, the pandemic. People like an easy answer to complex questions. And so when you produce a metric People are very tempted to misinterpret that and say, oh, it's a high metric. It must be, it must be three Starbucks and a Costa coffee right on the ocean. Um, whereas actually that's not what the metric's telling us at all. Uh, so I don't really like metrics at all. I kind of feel we should ditch a lot of them, but I could be convinced that there is an argument for them. But I think we must be very, very careful with the language around them and explain it clearly and not take shortcuts ourselves. And we do take shortcuts. Even in scientific papers, I've seen these metrics being used as the most Earth-like. And it's like, come on, guys, you, you know full well that what you're really saying is the radius of these planets is somewhat similar to the Earth. So why not just put that? You're not short of space. Um, so, yeah, that's been sort of uh, my, my, my hill to die on <laughs> for the last uh, five years or so, is trying to be to put out articles that actually explain where we are in this process of understanding exoplanet uh, characteristics, where we're going, what we know so far, and why, not just to say, I know this and you should take my word for it, but to say, okay, we've got this information, this is what it can tell us, and this is what it cannot tell us. I think that pretty well sums up our Exocast's mission goal yeah. as well. We're on that hill. Yeah. We're on that hill too. Um, <laughs> uh, but I liked I liked your um, your discussion of kind of the journey from you know, as we're approaching the next generation of telescopes to be able to characterize these planets. But your previous paper was very much the big data statistics filling in the gaps. Do you see like 
that transition happening or is are those going to be complementary uh, processes going forward where we're using the big data stuff to fill in the gaps that we don't know to better understand the characteristics of the planets that we do then focus on a little bit or are we going to be shifting primarily just towards looking at very interesting worlds uh, just those on their own and unique properties about single planets so in my opinion i do feel that exoplanet science is on this brink we're going from the land of detection to the land of characterization but characterization is so difficult like um even in the even if you consider the next generation of telescopes it's going to include the jwst i'm even going to push that further and say i'm happy to include louvois in my next statement or habex or whatever gets built and say you're not going to get enough data to do proper statistics so if you want to do statistics on a large number of planets then i think there's still a huge amount to be learned not from the actual characterization but just from the properties we can measure so far, which is radius, minimum mass, obviously of both, you have true mass, um, and you know the stellar type, the stellar metallicity, the orbital period, the instant radiation, uh, guesses about tidal lock, um, maybe composition of the star, all of those are properties we can measure now. And we could potentially do it for enough planets that you can get, you can start to do some statistics. And the statistics is going to tell us what the general case is. So, those planets are great for picking out one or two examples that we want to do characterization from. I think that's super exciting. I'm completely behind that. But you don't want to throw away the rest of the data. It was really hard and expensive to collect. Well, we can do so much more with a catalog. So this idea of imputing results was you know, really twofold. One is it might help us identify the best candidates for follow-up with the characterization telescopes. But also that when you have a more complete archive, you can start asking questions about what sort of planets form around which star, what, me what does metallicity really affect? You know, do you find uh, hot Jupiters in very Pacific, obviously I was going to say places, obviously you find them on short orbits, that's by definition hot Jupiters, but you know, around, <laughs> around certain types of stars, do we expect migration to occur in some situations and not others? All those kind of questions, I think there might be clues to them hidden in the exoplanet archive. And for that, we don't need the characterization. I think we just need to fill in the gaps of our, of our archive. Well, could we take a little bit of a deeper dive into your recent paper? What were you able to infer from you know, our relatively well-populated, but somewhat still sparse in some areas, uh, catalogue at the moment? What was your neural network able to, to pull out and, and add to that? Yeah, so the first thing I'd, I'd like to just add a disclaimer and say this was a kind of first attempt um, so I would not say the results were life-changing. <laughs> I think they're very interesting. And what we were trying to do was develop a tool that could be used in the future as well as now. And the reason I add this disclaimer is one of the things our initial neural network required was a complete training set data. That is, you had to train a set of planets that had all the properties you wanted to consider. And that meant that rather than using 4,000, we were struck, stuck to about 550 planets for our, our data set. And those planets all had radius, um, mass. So basically they had a minimum mass and then with the radius, you got the true mass. They had orbital period, they had instant radiation, they had a stellar mass. And I think we did number of planets in the system with the understanding that that's not necessarily complete. And we focused on imputation of mass. And the reason we focused on that one is it is the one measurement you cannot get with a single detection, um, at least not with transit or radial velocity. So it's the one that's missing most often. So we wanted to say, although our network could actually impute any of those six properties, our main analysis focused on the imputation of this mass. And we found that what was interesting is not so much the mass estimate per se, that was not bad. Sometimes it was in a factor of two or so, the true value. So it's not super accurate, but it at least gives you a ballpoint estimate. One of the interesting things we found, though, is that what you get at the end is a distribution. So rather than getting your mass measurement is 1.6 Earth radii, uh, Earth masses, yes, <laughs> units, Elizabeth units, um, you instead got a distribution. And you could take the mean of that distribution and get your 1.6 Earth masses if you wanted. But the distribution itself told you quite a lot about the data. So, for example, in some cases, we had a bimodal distribution with two peaks. And there was cases where that happened was typically when the network, based on its current data, could not differentiate between, um, I think it was a hot Jupiter or mini Neptune slash super Earth. And what that told you is both that class of planet could be found in exactly the same parameter space, given the six properties I listed. 
So that's quite interesting. If you're building a theory of planet formation, you're thinking about in situ formation versus migration. It's interesting to know those planets statistically can be found in the same place. And likewise, it was quite good at detecting errors or at least warning you when it didn't have a clue. So we had one planet where it actually gave a reasonable value. It wasn't too bad. But if you looked at the distribution, the distribution was like basically flat with a, a tiny little hump. And it was one of the gravitational lensing objects where, of course, we have so few objects at that sort of period. We basically have the ones in our solar system and that's it. And so that flat distribution was a network putting up a flag saying, oh, got me chum, you know, I've got a clue. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go for 10. Uh, 10 good? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it also pointed out one where the value wildly disagreed with what um, the Exoplanet Archive recorded as the mass. And actually the mass recorded on the Exoplanet Archive wasn't, almost certainly wasn't correct. I mean, the error bars were huge. So the actual mass value, I think, gave you a density that was unphysical. It was like 320 grams per centimeter cubed or something completely daft, where you just, no element we knew could produce that. Um, so if we found a way of including the error bars and we're working on things like that now, we might not have had that problem, but it was quite interesting that it flagged it for us and said, you know, this is, this distribution is just a long way from what you're what you're predicting. Um, so that that suggested to me that this technique has value. So sure, we we can give you a mass measurement, we can give you a radius measurement with this, but I feel that the distribution information is really good if you're building a theory of planet formation. And of course, as we get more and more data, we'll be able to train on rarer and rarer examples. So your parameter space will fill out, and our predictions will get better. So currently I'm working with a student, Florian, down at um, in Okinawa, and he's um, a machine learning expert and he's looking at ways you could train on an incomplete data set, which would enable us to use a lot more of the planets as training background, which I really think is vital if you're going to get these machine learning techniques off the ground. And the, the overall purpose is to give us a tool. It's not to give us an answer. I think it's to give us a tool that guides our theories and guides our future detections to give us as much information as possible. Yeah, and it's not just chucking out a table with the the numbers, like you said, the mean of all of these and saying that's the value for this planet. It's it's about looking behind the curtain and going, okay, well, what does that tell us about the structure of these systems and the potential structure of systems that we know that we can't measure? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really about providing as much information as possible so that when we formulate our theories, I mean, one of the things I like about the neural network is that it does it very much on the raw data. So it, it gives you a value that is the observed value. So it inherits the instrument bias with that. But although that could be seen as a disadvantage, I do like the fact it's telling you very literally, this is what the raw data statistics gives you. It's your home ground truth. And you can allow for that on top of, you can put basically layers on top where you allow for instrument bias, where you allow for, you know, um, anything else you might want to add in. But the neural network is giving you the, the ground truth. Like this is purely based on statistics. This is what we think is happening. And I, I think that's a really good sanity check. So one thing I wanted to touch on was was your work for JAXA, because, you know, the Western media often seems to forget that JAXA exists and only so focuses sad. on NASA and ESA. It's yeah. terribly sad. So <laughs> uh, maybe you could fill us in a little bit on JAXA's activities in space science and specifically planetary exploration. Absolutely. So JAXA has some absolutely amazing missions. I do hope that despite the NASA and ESA focus, people have heard of Hayabusa 2. So Hayabusa 2 was our um, asteroid sample return mission that uh, actually returned to Earth just last December, December 6, 2020, with um, two samples from asteroid Ryugu. And Ryugu is what we call a C-type asteroid. So it's thought to have undergone relatively little changes since the start of the solar system and also potentially contain organics and hydrated minerals. So the composition of this asteroid may give us clues about how water and the early organics actually arrived on Earth. And this is obviously key for understanding the start of our own life, but also for understanding how the architecture of a planetary system can produce a habitable planet. So if you, if we find there's, you know, a very good match between a Ryugu sample and also NASA has OSIRIS-REx, which will be bringing back a sample from Bennu, um, so you'll actually have two different samples, which is super important for any kind of generalization. Um, if we find those are a good match to what we're seeing on Earth, that might very well suggest that these planets, the terrestrial planets, are formed dry. 
and you do need a delivery mechanism. And then that's going to ask, okay, well, how did our system architecture enable that? For instance, do you need a gas giant to start scattering that wet material from behind the ice line through to your rocky planet regime? So I think it has a lot of applications, both for understanding our own solar system and our life on Earth, but also in our search for life around other planets. So that's that's been one of our, our top missions. And of course, we have a successor in the pipeline, naturally. Uh, we have our Martian Moon Exploration Mission, which will launch in the financial year 2024. And it's a sample return mission, not to Mars itself, but to Phobos, the inner moon of Mars. And Phobos and Deimos are a bit of a mystery because although people will probably swear by one mechanism or the other, we don't actually know how they formed. They may have been formed like our own moon, so they may have been carved from Mars itself during a giant impact, or they may be captured asteroids. But both of these give you a lot of information about the early days in the solar system. If they're captured, you have another example of how material moves from the outer solar system to the inner solar system. And they would have been sort of frozen examples of that, having been snagged by Mars's gravity. So we can sort of do a look back time, like we're trying to do with Ryugu. If they're actually carved on Mars, then you get a gl glimpse of what conditions on early Mars might have been that would have been preserved on these moons. And early in Mars's history, we do think the planet may have been more habitable and more like the Earth. So um, that would also tell us a lot about how habitability develops. So that mission is due to launch in, in like I say, financial year 2024 and return in 2029. And in addition to that as well, Phobos is pretty close to Mars, so we do expect it to have material from Mars itself thrown up onto the moon's surface. And simulations suggest we should be collecting quite a few grains from that. So actually, we will be the first Mars sample return when we get back in 2029. But the sample itself will be really complementary to samples collected by Perseverance and the NASA, Mars, NASA and ESA Mars sample return mission because while theirs is uh, confined to one place, so you get a really good look at the area, you're collecting the sample and you can sort of map the geology. We lose all of that when the sample gets kicked up onto Phobos. But in, it, in exchange, we get a sample that's potentially from all over Mars. Those grains don't have to be from the same location. And we also get um, a clock. If you look at the radioactive elements in those, those uh, grains, you should be able to be able to um, track the history of when they were kicked up. So you get a a sample that goes over time and over space, which is a really nice complement to the larger sample that the NASA and ESA MSR will bring back. So there are two missions. I mean, I can keep going, guys. We've also got a cat yeah, scheme, which is orbiting visas. <laughs> so we obviously have these two new, three new Venus missions, two from NASA and one from ESA. And I'd just like to plant a, a flag in Venus's atmosphere to say we're here now. <laughs> so yeah. uh, the Venus Climate Orbiter, um, Akatsuki is currently around uh, Venus. And of course, there was the ESA um, uh, Venus Express as well that was a few years ago. And those missions both looked at climate. So they'll be a really good complementary to the deep atmosphere of Da Vinci and also the kind of surface and subsurface that Envision and uh, Veritas will be able to do. We did a whole episode on Venus last month, so you can go and check out that if you want to learn more about those missions and what the JAXA mission is currently doing and realise that we've been saying it wrong this entire time. So, yeah. Should have had Elizabeth on earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we didn't we didn't actually touch on your textbook, which is uh, which came out last year, right? Oh, about yes. Planet planetary diversity, which in itself must be a somewhat different challenge from the popular science writing and the academic papers and then the textbook itself being a kind of different beast. Yes, it absolutely was. So the, the textbook was written because I made the mistake of really drinking too much wine at a, at a conference and then Dawn signed me up to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I did think it was, it was a really important project. I was really pleased to be involved in this. Um, so I'm the editor and author of just the first chapter of this book. And then the rest is written by teams of experts in uh, different planetary areas from geoscience um, through to all the sort of planetary work through to astrophysics. And the purpose here was to say, you know, we are on this brink between detection and characterization. And while you're in detection, uh, exoplanets is, is really been at least the main jurisdiction of astrophysicists. You're detecting these planets through their influence on the star. And, you know, that is the astrophysicist beat. But once you start to talk about characterization, you're dealing with not necessarily living in terms of biological, but a planetary system where everything is going to be intertwined from that core through to the mantle, through to the surface. And I, I 
can only speak for myself, but I don't think I've ever sat a geology course. Certainly if I did, it was back in high school and just a, a pretty light one. Um, so as an astrophysicist, I feel very unprepared. I like, I can tell you how to collect the data, but the interpretation is dealing with a planetary system and we need to pull these communities together. But here we are, we're starting to attend more of the same conferences, I think, but we're still typically publishing in different journals. Our keynotes are in different places. And it's not maybe obvious even where to go for that information. So that was the purpose of this book, was to pull these communities together and give you a grounding of where you might find this information. So in particular, there's four key chapters in addition to my exoplanet overview, where we took an Earth-like planet and we took a dial and turned it. So the dials were, you know, volatile abundance, heat budget, um, composition, and magnetic fields. Yes, remember them. <laughs> and we sort of asked, what do we know about variations and diversity in those areas and what might we expect to see if we see an otherwise Earth-like planet, but we even if we change these properties, you know, how how might the planet be different? And therefore, what would the observational signature be? And it's absolutely key we do that because we need to understand different abiotic processes on different planets if we're ever, ever going to be able to successfully um, detect a biological one. You've got to rule out the abiotic ones and you're not dealing with the Earth anymore. So we need to understand, you know, what would the system behave like and what different signatures might there be available on different planets. Yeah, and the title, I should just say, in case anyone wants to read this very interesting book, is uh, Planetary Diversity, Rocky Planet Processes and Their Observational Signatures. So we talked I a lot about it. I just downloaded it. Didn't actually mention the title. <laughs> yeah, I, I had it too. Very interested in the heat budget um, chapter, actually, because that was something when I was doing my work on, um, you know, carbon, it's a liquid cycle, something that was very poorly constrained uh, at the time. Um, so I, I'm definitely going to take a deep dive into that chapter and have a little look. This will be used for my environmental physics course, no doubt. And you'll, you'll all be... Uh, thrilled and unsurprised to know there is a doodly video about this book as well <laughs> so Excellent. if you don't fancy reading the book i did do a blackboard one minute version actually it's a few minutes long but yeah you can find a link to elizabeth's website with all of that stuff on it and links uh, to the books and to all of those videos uh, on the page uh, on exocast.org exocast yeah, so thanks, Elizabeth, for such an interesting discussion today on, on plant habitability, neural networks, science communication, and, and JAXA, among other things. So, um, But now's the time where we put our guests on the spot and ask them to adopt a new planet into our, our exocast family of uh, weird and wonderful wonderful worlds. So, Elizabeth, which planet has you have you chosen and, so, and why? So I've picked GJ832C. And the reason I took this planet is it's when I realised that sometimes the media goes completely bonkers. <laughs> it was, I was um, just starting to get into, you know, planet formation and reading the papers. And the news was full about this planet. It is the next Earth. It's the most habitable planet we discovered. It's another Earth 2.0. Every single paper splashed across. And I read the paper. And in fact, we don't even need to go into the paper. We can just look at the abstract. And in the abstract, so not really going too far here, it mentions it's a planet of about 5.4 Earth masses. So this is the paper by Mittenmeyer et al. in um, 2014. And they even say in the paper um, that it might be a super Venus. Now, I don't think you need to be a huge expert on the details of planets to realise a super Venus does not sound like the next Earth 2.0. So I think I actually posted on Facebook something like, what? And Stephen Kane, who um, I was actually, we were both at Florida together. He saw this post and he was like, good, a good friend of the show. <laughs> he saw this and he was like, Elizabeth, it's these metrics. This is what's throwing everyone. They want the easy answer. The metric is coming up quite high for this planet. And, uh, you know, th this is where it's all going wrong. And I said, Stephen, we've got to fix this. Just you and me right now. We've got to, we've got to fix the world. Lots of worlds. And we wrote this, this first, I don't know what it should be my first, it might be my first big article for the media uh, on specifically exoplanets. And we said, the metrics are misleading. This is, you know, this is the planet. Um, and that started my, my, you know, what, what would we call it, crusade, I guess, into trying to fix this for every single planet ever, ever more, where the media always goes bananas. And then I write an article saying, guys, no. So there's one I actually wrote some years later about Proxima Centauri B. And I wrote it for my blog because I wanted to be ruder than I thought any publication would let me be. <laughs> 
where I was like, let's break down what we actually know before we go a bit too far. And I was contacted by the editor of the guest blogs for Scientific American. And they were like, we want your post. And I was like, really? Really? Would you like me to to, to reword it? And the only thing they did was change the title by one word. The new title read, yes, we've discovered another exoplanet, but let's not lose our minds. I did not use the word minds in my personal blog of this. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, they actually kept it pretty verbatim. It was an opinion piece and they, they just went with it. So I was really surprised by that. But I've done it for several other planets where the media has kind of gone bonkers and you're just like, guys, you know, you know radius? And the radius isn't even the same as the Earth. So <laughs> maybe just dial it back. It's exciting. It's a great discovery. But we're not yet down to picking out the Starbucks on surface. So back off slightly. And, you know, I really think it's important, partly because it doesn't detract from the exciting of this excitement of the discovery. It's still an amazing discovery, really exciting. But if you pretend we found things that we haven't yet, then you devalue all the work that's going to come and you deprive people of the journey. And you might result in a lot less support for missions that are going to require a lot of money too, because people are going to be like, why do you need a telescope to find Earth 2.0 when you've already found it? Um, but of course we haven't. Yeah, I think it's good to include a cautionary media tale in our list of exo- exoplanets. <laughs> Better than some of the other ones we've had to talk about on the, the show a few times because of said controversy from media coverage on papers so it's always good to have backup uh so thank you for that (laughs) exocast so thank you very much to professor elizabeth tasker for chatting with us today you can follow her on twitter at girl and cat and if you want to learn about planet formation be be very sure to pick up her popular science book the planet factory it really is an excellent read that's cat with a k Cat for with a K, yes. Girl and cat. I thought I pronounced the K, but maybe to the American side come across. <laughs> I would have been with a, the only reason it's not with a C is because it was taken. That's the, that's the only reason. I'm, I'm not actually surprised by that yet. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our other episode this month. We're going to look through some of the last month's exciting new exoplanetary papers. You can get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on the show at exo underscore cast on Twitter. With a C. With a C. Cast cast with a C. (laughs) And you can find all of our episodes on our website, exocast.org, or on iTunes, Spotify, all good podcasting apps. You can help support us on the show and the Exocast team by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash Exocast. Each coffee is $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. Thank you to all of our past donors on there. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise at exocast.threadless.com, including all of our previous year's Exocup stickers. So make sure you check those out. For now, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne is the Tess Kops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern, and Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org. <laughs>